0: Think lightly of hell, and you will think lightly of the cross. Think lightly of hell, and you will think lightly of the cross. These words uttered by Charles Spurgeon, what many have considered to be the prince of preachers, perfectly articulate the climax that we see in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 31. They pair two incredible realities together, God's absolute perfect justice and wrath and His merciful, gracious forgiveness for us. We're wrestling between these two realities in our text this morning. And I want us to ask ourselves a question as we move into this difficult passage. Is this true of me? Do I have a limited view of God's wrath and as a result, a diminished view of God's grace? Do I have a limited view of God's wrath and therefore a diminished view of His grace and the cross? I asked Troy to read 2 Chronicles 6 and 7 to help get us into the mindset of the original Hebrew reader's Who would have been well aware of God's awesome presence in the temple? Having grown up with the stories of God going before them in fire and smoke and filling the temple and an awe and inspiration coming over Israel. As a result of this understanding and this background, when the author of Hebrews set out to explain to his audience, the book of Hebrews bleeds with both the awesome, absolute, terrifying wrath of God, and the undeserved, merciful grace that we have through Christ. Both themes together come to an uncompromising climax in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, verses 19 through 31. And they bring us to a moment that forces us to decide which path are we going to take? Are we going to embrace Christ's sacrifice, His atoning death on our behalf, and persevere and endure to the end, or are we going to walk away and face God's wrath? It's not an easy passage to deal with, but we want to read it and then try and walk through it carefully together this morning. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 31, I'm going to read the whole passage and then we'll break it apart one or one theme at a time. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Four, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray. Lord, as we face this incredible reality of your absolute justified wrath on sin and your uncompromising mercy and grace toward us, we pray that you would give us wisdom. Father, speak through me, through your word through the power of your Holy Spirit, to encourage, to challenge, to change your people into the image of Christ. Lord, use this time for your glory and for our good. In Christ's precious name, amen. I just want to welcome you again to the service. Those of you, if you're new or visiting with us, we're so glad that you're here with us today. We'd encourage you to grab a welcome bag on your way out of the service from the welcome desk that's just outside the red door I want to introduce myself, because I'm obviously not Tom Rempel. Uh, He was preaching last night for the Bible conference. Hopefully some of you got the chance to attend that. Um, And so I'm filling in for him this morning. I'm Brad Myers. I'm the adult ministries pastor here at Faith Bible Church. And he gave me a nice light text to handle with us together as a church this morning. in case you haven't been with us, let me review a bit of where we're coming from, where the book of Hebrews has been coming from over the last few months in the nine chapters. The author of Hebrews has been setting up Christ as better than everything else the original Hebrews knew in their worship. He says, Christ is greater than the angels, the messengers of God. He's greater than Moses, the leader that brought you out of, the prom, or into the prom, out of Egypt toward the promised land. Excuse me. He's a greater high priest than any high priest you've known, and he's a greater sacrifice than any of those that have been sacrificed before. And this is where the book begins to shift from mostly doctrinal, mostly theology about the person and work of Christ, to more practical implications about our Christian walks, specifically focusing in on how do we endure, how do we persevere to the end as believers in Christ. The passage breaks down into three sections, which each could have been their own message, but for sake of time, we're going to move pretty quickly. And fair warning, this is going to drive those of you that are A-type a little bit crazy, okay? Two truths to embrace, verses 19 through 21. Three ways to endure, verses 22 through 25. And one warning to heed. Yeah, it would have been nice if it had gone 1, 2, 3, or 3, 2, 1. I recognize that, but that's how the text lays out. And it's pretty straightforward. You're going to see it as we move through it. He starts with two truths to embrace. He looks back on everything that's been taught so far. Look at verse 19 therefore brothers. He addresses his brothers in Christ and says, therefore, which we know means what has gone on before. He's going to teach in light of what he's already taught. Basically from chapter 4 on, he has been proclaiming Christ's past sacrifice and his ongoing priestly ministry as the greater high priest. He says because of Christ's sacrifice, because of his priesthood, because of these two truths that we need to embrace. Truth number one, verse 19 and 20. We can confidently enter God's presence. We can confidently enter God's presence. Look at verse 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Confidence. This is a boldness. An assurance. This isn't an entitled irreverence that says, I deserve to be in this place, therefore I can walk in. But it is a boldness that comes through the person and work of Christ. A boldness to enter where? The holy places. To enter into God's presence. The Hebrews would have thought of that temple with the holy of holies inside. How? how is this possible? The Hebrew audience would have been thinking, no one could enter that place. No one could be in God's presence without being wiped off the face of the earth. He says by two things, by the blood of Jesus and by the body of Jesus. First, by the blood, he says, we enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And we think back to the Old Testament where it says only through blood can sins be forgiven. And he says, Christ's blood, that perfect sacrifice that Daryl talked so well about last week, applied to our sins on our behalf, cleansing us and allowing us to enter God's presence. But second, Christ's body, he says, by a new and living way, there is a path to God's presence through the curtain. That is through his flesh. Right down in the side of your Bible, Matthew 27, 51 Mark 15, 38 and 39 or Luke 23, 45 where the synoptic gospels talk about Christ's death on the cross and the moment Christ gave up his life, the curtain, that massive curtain that had for years separated God's people from the Holy of Holies tore down the middle, signifying our access to God's presence. He says this new way has been made possible, this Path through the curtain by the flesh, by the body of Christ. When Christ died on our behalf, the curtain was torn and we now have access to God's presence. And this is the point that he's been moving toward for the last couple of chapters. Flip back to chapter 9 and we see how Christ entered by his blood. Look at verse 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ gave up his blood to secure eternal redemption for us. He goes on to say, then that is on our behalf. Look at verse 24 of chapter 9. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God, what? On our behalf. Christ did this for us. And then lastly, to perfect us. Chapter 10, 12 through 14 that Daryl talked about last week. perfects us so we can walk into the presence of God not perfects us as if we're free from sin in this life but clothes us in Christ's righteousness so that we can walk into God's presence without being wiped out the point is that Christ's perfect life his atoning death and his verifying resurrection and ascension to heaven because of those things we can confidently enter God's presence this incredible reality is lost on us today. The Hebrew audience of the day would have thought back to the memories and the texts they had read, to Second Chronicles that we just read, where the temple is dedicated and God's presence descends and in God's incredible awesome holiness. The sacrifice is consumed and the people for terror fall to their knees and the priests can't even physically walk into the temple because God is so awesome. And we pass it off like it's not a big deal. He's saying you can now walk into that awesome presence confidently because of Christ. Or think back to two weeks ago when Tom was talking about the high priest on the Day of Atonement from Leviticus 16, the high priest who would walk into the Holy of Holies with bells on his cloak and with a rope tied around his foot in case he didn't come in appropriately and God would strike him dead and they'd have to drag him back out trying to get his job done as quickly as he could so he could get out without being killed for being in God's presence. That is the understanding that the audience would have brought to this. And he says, you can now confidently enter God's presence without fear of being struck dead. This is incredible. And we take it for granted. Some of you may not know that before coming on staff here at the church, I was a UPS driver temporarily over a season. And one of the things that was interesting that I didn't anticipate when I became a UPS driver is after being kind of like going through the training and all that, they give you your uniform. And they're very cautious about who they give their uniforms to. They're like, you're going to get three shirts and three pairs of pants and one hat and one vest. And, and when you're no longer working here, we want all this stuff back. You're like, well, that's kind of strange. I've never had anybody say that to me before. But there's a good reason for it. And they explain it to you. They say, that's because when you put on this uniform, people will allow you to walk into just about wherever you want to walk into. Places that normally would be restricted access. When you put on this uniform and pick up this UPS package, people will let you walk into the backs of banks. They will let you walk into hospitals. They will let you walk into all sorts of places that you normally didn't have access to. But because of this uniform, they'll let you walk in. That's precisely the point the author of Hebrews is making here. He's saying because you are now clothed in Christ's righteousness, because his perfection has been placed on you, you can boldly walk into God's presence, a place that you have no right to be by yourself. I don't want to belabor this point for sake of time because this is what all the rest of Hebrews has been talking about, but this is incredible. There's a second truth, though, that he goes on to explain, verse 21, that we want to take a little bit of time to talk about. Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, in addition to having confidence to enter God's presence, we can completely trust Christ, God's perfect priest. And again, if you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, you don't know how this theme has been building through the book of Hebrews. Let me attempt to kind of backtrack and give you some things that we can trust God's priest for that the text has already talked about. Four things that we can trust Christ as our great high priest for. First, for sympathetic compassion. Look at Hebrews 4 verses 14 through 16 in your Bibles. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We're going to come back to that theme. Hold on a second. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Our great high priest, Christ, is sympathetically compassionate to what we're going through because he walked through it first. Because he experienced everything that we are experiencing, all the trials, all the pain, all the need for endurance and perseverance, but without sinning. He is a sympathetic and compassionate high priest. Second, chapter 7, verses 23 through 25, he eternally intercedes for us. We read, For former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office but he, Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Think about this for a moment. Christ, as our great high priest, is in heaven now eternally interceding on your behalf. Speaking to God on your behalf. Fourth, or third, we can completely trust God's priest for perfect mediation. Hebrews 8, 1, 2, and 6. Now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now jump down to verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. The Old Testament Hebrews had priests and and prophets and kings that functioned as go-betweens between them and God, and Christ came as the perfect mediator between God and men. He is the one person that we need. And then lastly, we can completely trust God's priest for heart transformation. Chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. We've already read some of this, but bear with me. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Then he goes on. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons for the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, the external, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? Remember Daryl talking last week, the issue is our heart. No matter how many sacrifices the Hebrews brought to the temple, no matter how many animals were killed, their hearts we're still the problem. And Christ, as our perfect priest, offers heart transformation. The point is that we can rest in God's ongoing, Christ's ongoing priestly ministry. In his sympathetic compassion, he understands. His eternal intercession, he is interceding for us. His perfect mediation as the one between us and God and heart transformation to change what is most fundamentally broken about us. That is the great high priest that we worship here this morning. Who day in and day out stands at God's or sits at God's right hand and does these things for us. What he has done for us in the past and what he is doing for us today. The point is embracing the truth of the gospel in our lives daily should give us a confidence to enter into God's presence and a complete trust in what Christ has done and is still doing for us. But that's all the first nine and a half chapters of Hebrews. This is where the author of Hebrews begins to get deeply practical. He reveals his pastoral heart. Because three exhortations, three encouragements, flow naturally out of those that claim they adhere to these two truths. And we see three ways to endure, verses twenty through 22 through 25. He says this, there's three let us statements and you'll pick them up as we read through it. The first one, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He says, let us draw near, let us pursue relational intimacy with God. If Christ's blood and His righteousness has earned us the confidence to go into God's presence, then do it. This should sound familiar from Hebrews 4.16 that we read before. He says, "How, how do we draw near to God? He explains, with a true heart in full assurance of faith. A true heart, or your Bibles may have a sincere heart. This indicates an undivided focus and loyalty. God can't be fooled. You can walk in here and you can sing all the right songs and you can go home and you can say all the right things, but God will know whether or not your heart desires to draw near to Him. God will know whether you are confidently seeking His presence. In full assurance of faith. What exactly the last nine and a half chapters have been saying, that we can have faith and full assurance in Christ And his sacrifice on our behalf. And with a clean conscience and body. It's best to take these two parts together. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. He picks up on that sprinkling of blood idea that the Old Testament speaks of so frequently. And says, with our hearts sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ. And with a washing with pure water. He's merely indicating the inward heart change and the external act of baptism that go together. The point he's making here is you want to persevere in your Christian walk, you want to endure to the end, it starts by pursuing relational intimacy with God. It starts by desiring to enter the throne of God that Christ's sacrifice has made possible for you. So let me ask, how are we doing at drawing near to God? How are we doing at day in and day out pursuing this intimacy that has been made available through Christ. The Old Testament Hebrews would have stood day after day looking at the outside of a temple that they knew they could never enter without threat of being wiped out. We have been clothed in righteousness and have the right to walk into God's presence and most of us treat it as if it's not a big deal. I treat it as if it's not a big deal. I struggle to work up the desire to pray to God. Think about how ridiculous that is. We can walk into the throne room of God without being obliterated and we take it for granted. It says you want to persevere? Pursue relational intimacy with God. Second way to endure, we see in verse 23, let us Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us pursue enduring certainty in the gospel. Hold fast. This is an idea of clinging tightly to. Again, the Hebrew author is trying to convince his people to endure, to persevere. He explains a little more later in Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 36, when he says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then goes on with the whole chapter 11, Hall of Faith. If you were with us over the summer, it's almost the exact same command that was given to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3. Hold fast. Don't lose a grip on the hope that you have. And this is a unique phrase because we would expect him to say, hold fast to your confession of faith. Instead, he says, hold fast to your confession of hope. Which harkens us back to Hebrews 6, verses 19 through 20, where we read this weeks ago. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that endures into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. He says, hold on to this hope. It's an anchor for your soul when you're seeking to endure. He says, you want to persevere in this life? You must embrace the enduring certainty of the gospel day after day after day. How are we doing at holding fast to our confession of hope? How are we doing it, waking up every morning and reminding ourselves of the truth of the gospel in our life and the lives of others? And that's just our private life. How about our public life? Some of us may have the word profession of hope instead of confession of hope. How are we doing it, standing up in those moments when someone says, that makes no sense, and saying, this is the hope that I have? Be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have, in the words of 1 Peter. When push comes to shove, how are we doing? Do we profess our hope? Or do we pretend like nobody will notice? You want to persevere? Embrace the certainty of the gospel day after day. And finally, a third way to endure in verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He says, let us consider each other. Let us pursue loving accountability with each other in the church. Literally, the phrase is, let us consider one another how to stir each other up. And I love this phrase, how to stir up one another. This term is almost always used in a negative sense of agitating or prodding on. I'm from Western Nebraska, so I'm thinking cattle prod. You know, you're kind of poking, driving. The... You guys aren't from Western Nebraska, are you? No. You poke them and they move forward. Anyway, the point is, um, to stir up, to agitate, to prod, to press on, it requires both careful consideration, how to stir up, and intentional action, actually doing it. My mom had this great sign that was above the sink for me growing up. And it said, the smallest good deed is greater than the grandest intention. It says, take time to consider, but do something. Some of us get stuck considering forever. And then some of us are just out there doing things all the time, and we forget to take a little time to think about it. But it says, consider how to stir one another up. To what? To love and good works. To to move forward, to endure, to press on those around us to love and good works. And in case you missed it, we've hit Paul's trifecta faith, hope, and love. We're supposed to stir each other up to love and good works. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the show, and I don't even know if it's still on TV anymore, called How It's Made. It was a Discovery Channel show. My, my oldest son and I really enjoy going back and watching these YouTube videos. It's not a complicated show. It just takes you through the process of how things are made. The other day, we were watching one on how cheese is made. And you may not take any interest in cheese. There's nobody that doesn't like cheese, right? Unless you're like lactose intolerant, okay? But the way cheese is made is they take all this milk, right? They, they pour it out of the, the big truck and they put it in this, this bin and they mix in all the right things to make it curdle so that the curds and the whey start to separate out And they put it into this bin with these big blades that spin around and around and around. And literally, the bin is called a cheese agitator. It is designed to stir up, to mix up the cheese, to separate the good from the bad, the curds from the whey. Because without this agitator, the end product won't taste or look right. It's exactly the same idea as what he's saying here. Stir each other up. Get involved in each other's lives. Carefully consider how to press each other on to love and good works. He expands it with two explanations in verse 25. First, a negative and then a positive as if his audience is asking, well, how do we do that? He gives them a little bit of an understanding on this. These aren't separate commands. These are phrases that flow from stirring each other up to love and good works. He says first the negative, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. This term, not neglecting, to meet together, actually comes from the same root word as synagogue. It implies the local, official, corporate assembly of the church. When the church comes together, stir each other up to love and good works. A few passages to take a look at this afternoon if you're wondering more about what's supposed to take place in that gathering 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4, 1 Corinthians 11, 18, 14, 23, 16, 1 and 2, or Matthew 18, 20, Acts 20, verse 7, where we see the church gathering together to edify one another. In this moment, I must confess, I didn't always understand this correctly. When I was 18 or 19 and started attending the university on campus, I had two problems. Number one, I didn't understand what the church was called to be biblically. And number two, I did not own a car. Two problems. As a result, it was very easy for me to justify not making it to church, and I made Navigators, a great parachurch ministry on campus, my church. I said, we're singing, we're praying, we're encouraging each other. There's no difference. But biblically, what Christ calls us to is to gather together as his church to stir one another up to love and good works, to not forsake meeting together. And then he flips it and he says the positive. What are we supposed to do? So don't quit meeting together, but do encourage one another. Do exhort one another. Do find someone to help them persevere as well. Our church could do a whole lot worse then if every single one of us came on a Sunday morning and walked out of the door of our car, walked into this building and said, "I am going to find one person to stir up to love and good works. I am going to find one person to encourage before I go back to my car today." One of the commentaries I was reading this week put it this way: "The New Testament lends no support to the idea of lone Christians. Close and regular fellowship with other believers is not just a nice idea but an absolute necessity for the encouragement of Christian values. And he is saying, you want to persevere to the end, you must pursue the loving accountability that starts in a local church gathering. doesn't have to be Faith Bible Church, but it needs to be a church. So how are we doing? How are we doing at considering one another? How are we doing at coming together to encourage love and good works. It's a whole lot easier to sneak in and sneak out. It's a whole lot easier not to invest in the messiness of somebody else's life. It's a whole lot easier not to get involved in the agitation that takes place within the church. It's a whole lot easier to sleep in when you stayed up the night before. He says, don't forsake meeting together if you want to persevere to the end. the author is saying here is confidence in God's presence and trust in Christ as God's perfect priest must result in the pursuit of relational sincerity with God, enduring certainty in the gospel, and loving accountability with each other. That is the fruit in actual practical terms that the truth that he's espoused results in. And that's where most of us would prefer to end the thought, right? On a positive note. Gather together as a church, sing kumbaya, all that sort of a thing. But instead, we get a stern warning about neglecting these truths and these commands. Verse 26 through 31 gives us one warning to heed. Basically, to come as an if then. If you do this, then this is the result. Verse 26 and 27, he gives us his thesis. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversary. He says if we go on in willful, ongoing, unrepentant sin, we have abandoned the sacrifice there is for sins. After we have received the knowledge of the truth, after we've intellectually understood the gospel and understood Christ's sacrifice, but totally reject it, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Not because Christ's sin or Christ's death is insufficient, but because when we reject that, there's nowhere else to go. And instead the result is terrifying expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. Remember 2 Chronicles 7? Remember God's power and glory and holiness descending from heaven and consuming the sacrifice and falling on the, the congregation falling on their knees for fear of what God might do? This moment, this person looks at the sacrifice and says, I don't need another sacrifice, I got this covered. And that fire rightly turns on them. He gives us a lesser example to highlight the greater reality he's speaking of here. He looks to his Hebrew audience in verse 28 and says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Saying it kind of works this way already. If someone ignores the law of Moses in Israel, the penalty is death, is physical death. But the greater reality, verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. So you think the physical death for defying the Old Testament law of God was bad. How much worse will the punishment be for rejecting Christ as the sacrifice? It says, this person has done three things. They have trampled underfoot the Son of God. This is an extremely strong term. That's the idea of grinding under your foot into the ground. Christ has regarded as unclean the blood of the confidant. has looked at the sacrifice Christ made on the cross and has said, that doesn't matter. It doesn't make any difference. And has lastly insulted the spirit of grace, the very spirit that brings new life in the church and that allows us to be involved in each other's lives has been insulted. As a side note, there are those that would have us believe that the spirit is simply a force That proceeds from the Father and isn't an actual person. You can't insult a force. The Holy Spirit, as the third person of the Trinity, is insulted by the total and utter rejection of Christ's sacrifice. In short, this is a person that theologians have for long called an apostate. A person who mentally, intellectually understood what the gospel was all about, maybe even was in the church and participated with God's people for a period of time, but then said, forget that I'm out. And the result will be verses 30 and 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. These were the words for the infamous sermon of Jonathan Edwards that sparked the first great awakening. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. He was preaching from Deuteronomy 32, which is where this quote is from, and his title was taken from verse 31. How much worse will that punishment be? For those that have been among God's people and have then left and have denied Christ and have rejected the Holy Spirit. And we don't communicate these things lightly. We don't communicate them in a way that is, I told you so. The reality of God's wrath and judgment and hell is not a light thing, but it is true. And we do no one any favors in our church or our neighbors, friends, and coworkers by denying the reality of what God's righteous wrath means. point is that God's response to a sinful rejection of the gospel is judgment and a terrifying consuming eternal punishment it's what the Bible teaches so I return to Spurgeon's quote from the beginning of the message think lightly of hell and you will think lightly of the cross Think lightly of God's wrath and you will make little of his grace. I think the author of Hebrews would add, Think lightly of hell and we will think lightly of the incredible unearned privilege we have through Christ to be in God's presence. Think lightly of hell and we will think lightly of the ongoing priestly ministry of Christ on our behalf. Think lightly of hell and we will take for granted the relational intimacy we can have with God. We will take for granted the gospel certainty we confess and we will take for granted the loving accountability in the bride of Christ, his church. Think lightly of hell and we will think lightly of the terrifying, consuming wrath that Christ absorbed for us. But on the alternative, make much of hell and we will make much of the incredible unearned privilege we have to be in God's presence. Make much of hell, and we will make much of the ongoing priestly ministry of Christ in heaven on our behalf. Make much of hell, and we will make much of the relational intimacy we have with God, of the gospel certainty we confess, and of the loving accountability He's given us in the church. Make much of hell, and we will make much of the terrifying, consuming wrath that Christ absorbed for us on the cross. His sacrifice will mean the world to us if we understand what it earned for us. And so we stand before a text like this, the culminating moment in the book of Hebrews with two choices. The author looks at his audience and says, here are the paths you can persevere, you can endure, you can cling to these truths, live out these things, and be with God. Or you can reject this sacrifice, you can walk away from what Christ offers, and you can face the natural implications of that decision. Are you going to persevere or not? Lord, we confess how hard this truth is. We do not understand your mind at all times, but your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, your ways are higher than our ways. And you teach us in your word that your wrath is perfect and righteous and your grace is unbelievably merciful. Lord, we praise you that these two things met perfectly in Christ on the cross. Help us to live out obedience to what endurance means for what we believe and for what we do. And Lord, if there are any in this body who are tempted to walk away from the only place that they have hope, I pray that your spirit would work in them, that you would bring them back again to the knowledge, the saving knowledge of Christ. Lord, that you would give them a reason for the hope that we have. We pray all this in Christ's name.